Uh, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Give ear to the word of God. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Since the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's uh, briefly pray and ask God's blessing upon his holy word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We know that uh, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask once again that you would be pleased to teach us your word by your spirit. Give me grace to speak uh, what is true of your word. And we pray that you would apply it to each one's heart here. Uh, Make us grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And if anybody sit here this morning that is still a stranger to you and not reconciled to you by faith in your son, we pray that you might even use your word today to to call them into your kingdom, to call them to repentance and faith, that they too might have the salvation and all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. And we ask all these things in his his wonderful name. Amen. Well, if you've been here for a number of years, which most of you have, you might remember we've, for a, a long time, we went through the Psalms, mostly in order on the first Sundays of the month. And uh, recently, I don't want to say take a break, took a break from it, but sort of took a pause from that series to start on the first Sundays going through the Ten Commandments, at least briefly. Well, this morning we're going to cover both of those bases by taking another look at the Second Commandment, the one that forbids the sin of idolatry. And we're going to look at that commandment, not through the text of Exodus 20 directly, but through the lens of Psalm 115, which, as I just read and as you just noticed, uh, deals with that same subject uh, at some at some length. Um, you might know there are a number of passages. Uh, be, it would be difficult to number to try to number all the passages in both the Old and New Testaments that deal with the subject of idolatry. I think sometimes some of us get the idea, the wrong idea, that it's just an Old Testament thing. Uh, that's not true. Paul deals with it, as we're going to see, in Romans and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. It's not a, just an Old Testament sin. It's, uh, it's still one that applies today and is broken by many today. Uh, but there are a number of passages, a great number of passages in both the Old and New Testaments that deal with this subject. Not just the actual commandments themselves found in Exodus 20 verses 4 to 6 and Deuteronomy 5, 8, 
to ten, but there are also, I can't even say dozens and dozens probably of passages throughout what we call the historical books in the Old Testament and even in the New uh, that show the wickedness of, of this sin in particular, that show in many ways the consequences of this sin. And we could spend all morning just going through passages that deal with the people of Israel committing the sin of idolatry, God calling them to repentance, and many times they don't repent, and God sends very uh, very hard chastisements upon them for this for these sins. Um, and these these examples in the Old and New Testament are intended in many ways to serve as examples for us to warn us away from this sin which the Lord hates. You know, when I read the text of the Ten Commandments earlier in the ser- service from Exodus 20, the language, I know when, you, when we, we read these things so often, the language kind of loses a little bit of its punch. But when, when the Lord himself says that he's punishing the sins, uh, visiting the sins of the fathers, on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate him. Like that's how God sees idolatry. It's no small thing to God. He, he hates it and he views it as something as an expression of hatred toward him. And of course, thankfully he says he, he goes on to say he shows mercy to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. Just a couple examples to, to remind us of think about the golden calf. The example of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32, if you remember that text, a sh- it should be a shocking text. Moses is up on the mountain uh, with the Lord, and before he even comes down, they're already asking Aaron to make a golden calf for them. And they're saying, remember, they, they, he tells them, oh, give me your earrings and everything, and he melts it down, I'm paraphrasing, and they make this calf. Remember when, he, when Moses confronts him, he says, the people... You know, they, they gave us all this gold. I put it in the fire and out jumped this calf. Like he didn't actually make the calf. It was a silly thing to say um, as if he's saying God did it. Right. Of course, God didn't do it. Um, but what did what did God say or what did the what is the word in Exodus 32 say it? God tells Moses, basically, let my anger burn hot against these people to consume them. Like God's going to get rid of all of them. And then he basically says, and then let me start over with you and I'll make a great nation of you instead. Like, I'll do a do-over. These people, don't, these people hate me. I'm going to hate them back, so to speak. And Moses interceded for them. And, of course, it was God's purpose all along to show mercy. And God did that. But, but it, God did not just not do anything, did he? Thousands of them died. Remember the sons of Aaron, the Levites? What did they do? He told them, get your swords on. You know, praise the Lord and pass the ammo. Get your swords on and go strike down even if it's your brother, people in your own family who committed this heinous sin, strike them down. Thousands of them died, even though God showed mercy, didn't blot everybody out. And then God sent a plague and even more died. There were, there were consequences for this sin. Thousands of the people of Israel died by the sword and by the plague for the sin and the wickedness of idolatry. Think again. We looked at this a couple Sunday nights or so ago of the sin of Nadab and Abihu. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, it's such a short passage, I'll just read it. It says there in Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And what happened? And fire came out from before the Lord. There's that phrase again. 
fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, that's in this case the priests, right? Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. You know, if, if we had been there, if we had been watching it, we might not have noticed anything out of, or, out of the ordinary. I don't know if the strange fire had a different look to it. I don't know if it just had a different smell to it, a different kind of incense. Uh, but whatever the case was, God said, I didn't command you to do that. They were not free to innovate. They were not free to offer new and improved worship uh, that was not according to God's word. This same sin, although in a different form, I have to say is rampant in our day. People in churches, pastors, church leaders, they seem to have it in their minds that it's up to them to do whatever seems right in their own eyes when it comes to worship on the Lord's day. Has God given us no instruction in these things? Has he not told us the way to worship him in simplicity and in truth according to his word? So idolatry can take multiple forms. It can take the form, the more crass form of worshiping images. And I know some of us, you might think, oh, this doesn't happen now. I, I beg to differ. Go see a Roman Catholic church sometime. I'm not saying go worship with them, but walk into one sometime. Walk into, go see a Buddhist temple. Idol worship through images is still as rampant now as it ever has been, even if we don't always get exposed to it. So worshiping graven images or, as Nadab and Abihu did, worshiping God in a way that he has not commanded or in a way that he has forbidden and, and, and prohibited in his word. Another form of idolatry, it's, it, there's some overlap between the first and second commandments. And this one might be the most prevalent of all. It can involve trusting in anything or anyone other than the Lord for our salvation for our help and to be our shield in time of trouble. You know, Calvin, Calvin said that idolatry, uh, worshiping idols, that he, he said that our hearts are as a factory of idols. There, you know, he didn't have conveyor belts in his day, but you know, pic, picture a factory churning out idols 24-7. That's the way that, that Calvin said our hearts are. It is a sin to which, in all those different forms, it's a sin to which we are, I think, far more prone than many of us might like to admit or imagine. Well, here in Psalm 115, we are exhorted by the psalmist to avoid, at all costs in some ways, the foolishness of idolatry. And instead, what does he tell us to do? He tells us three times towards the end of the psalm, trust in the Lord alone. And why? Because three times also he tells, him, tells us that the Lord is our help and shield. And so unlike worthless idols, which are the work of human hands, as verse 4 tells us, and they can do nothing, what does it say about God in verse 3? God, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He does all that he pleases. Their idols can't do anything, but God can do all things. And in verse 8, and we're going to spend a good bit of time on this particular part of the psalm, Lord willing, in verse 8 we're given an additional incentive to flee from the sin of idolatry, not only is idolatry foolish and vain and wicked, but there are also dangers involved in the sin of idolatry as a consequence to it as well. Not only does it elicit the displeasure and wrath of God and sometimes severe chastisements, but one of those chastisements, as we are warned there, is in verse 8, those who make them become like them 
And then he adds, so do all who trust in them. We become like what we worship in some ways. If we worship an idol of any kind, in some ways we are being told here that we will become degraded into their image more and more. Here we are warned about one of the many inherent dangers of the sin of idolatry in order that we might be better equipped to flee from it. You know, sometimes we we don't see the danger in things, right? And so we kind of are careless around them. Uh, I remember when I was a, a youngster, Many, many moons ago, uh, we had an electric stove and we had those kind of curlicue burners. And don't ask me why. And I'm not my mom's not watching this. so She can't be upset about it. But uh, some for some reason, due to lack of cabinet space or whatnot, the cereal, the sugary cereal, maybe she was trying to hide it, was in the cabinet above the stove. Well, she had just made something on the stove. So what do you think I did? Didn't know the stove could be, it didn't occur to me the stove might be hot, so to get myself up to get the sugary cereal, I put my hand on the burner, and I got a pretty good reminder that the stove could be hot, and I don't think I ever did that. Again, well, I didn't perceive the danger of what the stove could, could pose to me. Well, this is in, in a more serious way, I think we don't perceive the dangers of certain sins, not the least of which is idolatry, uh, in order that we might be very careful to avoid them, to even when the scripture says flee, from a sin, you know it's something that we are very prone to and something very dangerous. And idolatry is one of those as we're going to see that Paul tells us to flee from. So we're going to see, Lord willing, at least three things briefly from our text. The first is the folly of idolatry, the folly, the foolishness of it. Secondly, the dangers of idolatry. And lastly, uh, but not least, the blessing of trusting in the Lord instead. So first, The first thing the psalmist does here is point out the folly of idolatry. And the very first thing he says in the psalm in verses 1 and 2 is he cries out to God. He he prays to God to vindicate his honor and glory before the heathen, before the pagan Gentiles. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Or some translations, I think, rightly put it, where now is their God? In other words, you know, he used to be around, but it seems like he's gone now. It seems like God isn't watching over his people. Now, certainly there is an implied request here, I think, for God to deliver his people, uh, Israel, from some kind of danger or some kind of enemy, probably something about the nations around them, the way that it's worded. Um, And the request is based upon or grounded upon the the concern for the glory of God's name in the face of the idols of the nations who were in some way threatening Israel and mocking the one true and living God as they did so. You might remember even I didn't read the whole text, obviously, but in Exodus 32, I believe it is where the golden calf happened and and God tells him, I'm going to start over. And Moses says, you know, basically part of his prayer was. You know, if you do that, if you wipe them out, the nations, the the pagans are going to go see, you know, I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Look, look what God did. He brought his people out just to kill him. He rescued them from from slavery in Egypt just to, to drop them dead in the wilderness. And so what was Moses doing? Moses was appealing to God's glory for the concern for God's name and his glory. And the psalmist does very much the same thing here in in our text. But notice where the psalmist begins after his request for delivery, deliverance of God's people from their danger or their enemy. Uh, Notice what he does is he starts by exposing the folly of the nation's idols. He starts by exposing the foolishness of, of idolatry. 
And he gives us a godly reminder of the foolishness and utter vanity of idolatry in a lot of ways, as we, we might use the word a polemic against it, an argument against it. And he does this so that we who are often tempted by it might be better equipped to flee from it and trust in the Lord alone instead. Look at verses 3 through 7. Verses 3 through 7, he writes, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And there's a contrast here, isn't there? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And then he says, They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel feet but do not walk and they do not make a sound in their throats in other words it's not just that they don't talk they don't even make noises like an animal like like they can't make any the slightest noise they are incapable of and yet people worship them and serve them and trusted in them for deliverance there is a, a vivid contrast between god and the idols of the nations our god is in the heavens he does all that he pleases unlike the idols who can't do anything God does whatever he wants. The idols can do less than nothing. They can't do anything. Here I think the psalmist might be kind of hinting at, I I can't think of a different term for it, kind of the psychology of idolatry. In other words, what, what is it that lies behind the sin of idolatry? What are people thinking when they commit such sins? I think an idol, in, in essence, in some ways, is meant to be a God that can be manipulated or controlled by its maker and by its worshipers. You know, uh, there Romans 1, which we're going to read in a little bit uh, later in the sermon, Romans 1, I think, tells us that all people, all men and women, all people that have ever lived, ever will live on this earth, are helplessly religious. They can't help but be religious because God made them for himself. God made them to be in relationship with him. We are not just brute animals. No one, no matter how much they might act like one, is is designed that way. We know deep down that God is there. And so rather than fighting against it completely, we worship other things rather than God. We are helplessly religious. It's been said that you cannot look in in history at, uh, at any place, at any time in history, and find a people, a whole people, a nation or a group, Uh, that was entirely atheistic. There's always some form of religion, and that is not an accident. That is not a coincidence. Uh, It's because God made us that way. But what they want to do is they don't want to be under the control of God. They want to control the God they worship. They want to be able to manipulate the God they worship to get what they want out of it, like putting a quarter. I know nothing costs a quarter now, but, you know, putting a quarter in the machine and getting whatever it is you want out. uh, That is behind practically every form of idolatry you can think of. They don't want to conform their lives to God's word, so they say, well, we'll make a God in our own image or some other image, and we'll manipulate him through our worship in such ways to get it to do what we want to do. But that's not much of a God, is it? A God that you can make on your own, whether physically or otherwise, through your own imagination, and a God that you could control, being the puny little things that we are, isn't really much of a God at all, is it? And yet our God, who is the one true and living God, who will not share his glory with graven images, what does the psalmist say? He's enthroned in heaven. He's not there in your little building. You can't, you can't put God in a box. You can't take God with you 
and put them on the hearth of, of the fireplace at your home or put them in your little worship building and have control over him. He's up there, so to speak. He's in the, he's in the heavens enthroned and he does whatever he wants. You can't make him do what you want him to do, nor should that be your goal. We, we should not have it as our goal to manipulate God or get him to change or do what we want. We should try to do what he wants. God does what he wants. He cannot be manipulated. God cannot be controlled. As Nebuchadnezzar said about God after his sanity was restored. Remember in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar got kind of full of himself to say the least. He was the most powerful man in the world, uh, literally. And he looked out at his kingdom, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this part, but he said, like, dig me. You know, look, look, look at this great kingdom. Is this not the great kingdom that I have made for myself, for my glory? Me, 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 me. And all of a sudden God struck him in such a way as to make him roam the field like an animal. And not like a tame animal, like a, like a beast. He, his fingernails, it was like Howard Hughes. His fingernails grew, his hair grew crazy. I don't know how they, it's a good thing this wasn't the age of social media. It would have been all over the place, right? It would have been everybody's, everybody's video feeds would have been Nebuchadnezzar eating grass and all this stuff. Well, it was for a time. God humbled and then God restored his sanity to him. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar said about God after his sanity was restored. He said his dominion, remember the whole thing that got him in trouble was my dominion, my kingdom. He says his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Nebuchadnezzar certainly wasn't. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar finally realized, I'm going to die someday. I can't take this kingdom with me. God never changes. His kingdom goes on and on from one generation to the next. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Here it is. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. God does whatever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants. And then he says, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? People do say these things, but they can't. You really can't question God's actions because he's God. No one can stop him if God has determined to do something. None can stay or stop his hand or say to him, what have you done? But what about the idols of the nations? These idols that, that entire nations at times, and even still in some ways, worship and serve and try to force on other people, they are nothing. They can do nothing. They are powerless to bless or to curse, to help or, or to harm. And why is that? He says in verse 4, they are what? The work of human hands. It's the silliest, dumbest thing ever invented by man, if you just stop and think about it. To worship something that you have made, it's just about the dumbest, most foolish thing a person can do. Jeremiah 10, I won't read the whole section, but Jeremiah 10 has a great argument and polemic mocking the idols, much like Psalm 115 does. And here's what it says in Jeremiah 10, verse 5. It says, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. You ever see a scarecrow? I grew up in the farm belt and they had them once in a while to kind of scare the crows away from the corn. I don't think it really worked. Um, but their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. And then he says, do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. He's mocked. They, now, granted, the idols of the nations, most of them, probably looked much more impressive than a scarecrow. But he's telling them, you know, that big 
fabulous, you know, golden, whatever idol that might look scary and impressive, it's as dumb as a scarecrow. It's as worthless and useless as a scarecrow. Unless, at least a scarecrow kind of does something. Hopefully. Might scare off a crow or two here and there. It says, don't be afraid of them. Why? For they cannot do evil. They can't hurt you. They're nothing. Neither is it in them to do good. They can't help you. They can't harm you. So, and so the, the passing prosperity of the wicked, and this is, this is the problem we sometimes have, the passing prosperity of the wicked is not a sign that their false gods and their idols actually possess the power to help them or to save. And this, this is probably one of the problems throughout the Old Testament with Israel and even into the New is what happened? The, the people of God would see the wicked prospering while they weren't. And instead of saying to themselves, oh, maybe there's some sin that we've committed against the Lord that we need to repent of, like happens even in our age, our own nation is experiencing this right now. God's withholding the reins and things. And in some ways, our blessings have been removed because of our sins. What they do is they say, well, the pagans, they're, they're prospering. They're doing pretty well. They must be on to something. What do they do? Oh, they worship this idol. And so what did they do often? They didn't often abandon the Lord, but they just kind of incorporated idolatry into their own worship. When you read the books of the Kings and the Chronicles in the Old Testament, one of the ways, and I'll, this will be your homework today after church, one of the things that you will notice is when they would say, you know, you kind of need a scorecard to keep track of which king and which Judah or Israel you were looking at. But it would say such and such was a wicked king, for he committed the sins of his father Jeroboam, who led the people into idolatry. That's not a quote, but that's, what, that's the substance. Or such and such was a good king, and what did the good kings do? Led the people away from idolatries, tore down the Asherah poles, tore down the high places, tried to bring people back to the worship of God the way that God has, had given and commanded it to do, to be done. That's, that, is, that is the number one determining factor of a good king or a bad king in the Old Testament. And in some ways, those same truths hold still, hold still today. And so the people would compromise and syncretize their own worship with that of idols in the hopes that they get some of the quote-unquote blessings that they thought those idols brought, but they really didn't. And they shouldn't have looked at it that way. In the same way, the passing trials of this life among the godly are also not signs that God has gone AWOL, like the nations say, where is your God, right? Or that he's powerless to help or save. Well, God's not going to bless us. I guess we've got to look elsewhere. That's not the right lesson. Certainly isn't. And so we too in our day must, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:14, we have to learn to flee from idolatry for it is vanity and folly and it's greatly displeasing to our God and Savior. Well, the second thing is it's not just foolish. Idolatry, there is dangers inherent in the sin of idolatry. That's what our text says in verse 8. We've already noted that the scriptures in the Old and New Testaments are filled with examples of God's wrath being kindled against such things. And they're filled with examples of God's severe chastisements that at times he has inflicted even upon his own people for the sin of idolatry. And what does the Bible say in, in one of Peter's letters? Judgment begins where? With the household of God. Like we may see that and go, man, God is being harsher to his own people than he was for a time to you know, pick a Gentile nation, the Philistines or whoever. Not so. The fact that God chastises his own people, that judgment begins with the household of God, it should fill the unbeliever and the pagan with terror. 
If God does that to his own people in this life, not as a judgment, not as a, a, a condemnation, but as a chastisement, what's he going to do to those who disobey the gospel of Christ and refuse to submit to him and believe upon him? Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 to 7, talking about the Old Testament accounts of all these things. He says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. There's Paul's way of doing things. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What, what passage is he talking about? Exodus 32. The golden calf, that's the phrase used there. The people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play and their play was sin and wickedness and sexual immorality. He says, in other words, you know that, that account in Exodus 32, this isn't exactly what he says, but it's what he's saying. That account of the golden calf, that's there for our instruction. And what's the takeaway? What's the application? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Over and over again in that chapter, Paul reminds us that thousands among God's people died because of those sins. This is meant to serve as an example for us and as a warning for us in the church today, even in our day, to read those stories. You know, when you read the Old Testament accounts, the historical books of what happened to God's people in the Old Testament, to read those stories without considering their application for us today uh, is, is short-sighted at best. It is to fail to learn the lessons that the scriptures would teach us if only we had the eyes to see and the ears to hear what God is saying to the churches, as he says in the letters to the churches in Revelation. And that brings us to, to the, the psalmist warning in verse 8. Look what he says there. Those who make them, talking about idols, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now what does that mean? Uh, it's not an easy thing to, to get to all the possible meanings of it. James Montgomery Boyce is helpful as usual. He says, idols not only mislead their worshipers, in other words, they teach untruth about God, because God is not a God you can see with your eyes. Uh, not only do I idols not only mislead their worshipers, but they also debase them, which is why this section closes by saying, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It means that human beings are drawn downward, not upward, by false gods. And there's a spatial analogy going on here that you, know, that you can't take it too literally, but in a sense, and we're going to see this from Romans chapter 1, when you worship the one true living God, in a sense, don't take this literally, it's as if you're looking up. You're looking up at a God who is above you, over and above, even in glory, his glories above the heavens. When you turn to idols, where do your eyes go? Down. You're, you're worshiping things that God has made, which are meant to testify to his existence. And rather than using what they tell you to point you upward, you just stay looking down. Oh, look at, you know, I, I sometimes compare this to, to an airplane. You ever been somewhere near the airport and, and a plane is landing, but you don't, maybe you don't hear it or see it or not paying attention. But the shadow crosses over you and it comes right across. And you're like, whoa, you don't jump out of the way of the shadow, I hope, and go, wow, that thing almost got me. You know, look at all these things. What are they? You know, you look up, you go, that, there's a plane up there. You know instinctively, oh, there's a plane landing it's like the people that commit idolatry are just looking at the shadows on the ground and ignoring the reality of what is supposed to point them to, that there is a God who made them. And is this not what Romans 1 teaches us? Look at Romans 1, 
19 to 23, Paul says there, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, everything that God has made testifies that there's a God. Stuff doesn't just happen. Things don't just come into existence without someone making them. They testify to God's existence. And it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they turn from worshiping the one true living God who they know is there to worship idols made in the image of other things that God has made. So what happens when people refuse to acknowledge and worship the one true and living God? Because it happens all the time. What happens when that occurs? They become, according to Paul, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Futility, foolishness of heart and a darkened heart, not enlightenment. The idolatry of secular humanism promises enlightenment, but what does the Bible say about it? It leads to darkness and degradation. It leads down, down further and further. And what happens, what happens when the people turn away from God this way? They become idolaters. What do they do? Paul says, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, people, all people, every single one you will ever meet, all people, they're going to worship something. Whether they realize that's what they're doing or not, they're worshiping something. Is it God, the one true and living God, or is it something, something else? They are going to worship something, even if it's not God. And what happens when people turn to the worship of idols? Sexual immorality and perversion of all kinds. They're, they're, these are the steps of degradation in, in a person and in a people. Romans 1, 24 to 25, he says, therefore, there's that word, therefore, because of this. Therefore, God did what? God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They thought it was going to lead to honor and freedom and all these things. It, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature, the created thing, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Do you see the dangers of idolatry a little more clearly now? It's not some safe, neutral thing that we can kind of just dilly, dally with and not worry about. Do you see why the Bible repeatedly warns us to flee from this sin? These sins are degrading sins. They are sins that harden our hearts and lead to further darkness. They lead further and further downward into darkness and open immorality and wickedness. And I don't think it takes much to, to say that. Do we not see the evidence of these things all around us in our culture? You can't, you can't turn the news on for two minutes. You can't look at social media for two minutes without seeing abundant examples of this kind of, of, of deepening into darkness and depravity. There's a book by a professor 
named G.K. Beale, Gregory Beale. He's written a book about this subject uh, stated for us in verse 8 of our text. It's called, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And he summarizes the theme of that book by saying this, and it sounds a lot like verse 8. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or restoration. So he he bases the idea of his book not on our text, although he does he does quote our text and refer to it. But he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, which speaks of the hardness of heart among God's people in Judah, so that they can't hear with their ears and see with their eyes to turn back to the Lord for healing. And in making the case of his book, he does point to our text in verse as well. So let us search our hearts and pray to the Lord that in his mercy towards us and his son, Jesus Christ, he might be pleased to search our hearts for us by his spirit and reveal to each of us in any way that we might have fallen into the sin of idolatry, whether it be the crass idolatry of, of images, the idolatry of money or possessions, statism, any kind of thing, syncretistic religion, trying to add other things to the Christian faith. Anything like that, anything that that we might be relying on other than God and trusting in other than God for our salvation and for our protection. We come to resemble what we worship. If we are worshiping idols, it leads downward into debasement and depravity. If we are worshiping the one true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ, his son, what does Paul say about that in 2 Corinthians 3.18? He says, we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens? Are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the truth of his word leads to sanctification and more and more uh, being transformed into his image. From one glory to the next until we're finally in heaven in, in glory with Christ, idolatry leads to degradation and debasement. Trusting in and worshiping Christ leads to spirit-wrought transformation more and more into the image of Christ in this life and then glory in the life which is to come. Well, last but not least, briefly, the psalmist not only warns us against the folly and danger of idolatry, but he also exhorts us to do the opposite, to trust in the Lord alone And he tells us, in doing that, he tells us of the blessing of God upon those who trust in him and not in idols. Look at verses 9 through 13. He says, three times, O Israel, do what? Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, you know, the leaders in 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 the church, so to speak. Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And then he says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. You might not see it right this second. I think that's the implication. You may not be perceiving it right now. Trust in the Lord and seek him. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. He goes through the same three categories, so to speak, of people. Israel, the house of of Aaron, and then all those who fear the Lord, Those people are to trust in the Lord because he's their help and their shield. And what what will God do? God will bless them. He blesses faith, to say the least. In his commentary on, on this psalm, Joseph Alexander summarizes it this way. This is the practical application of the contrast just presented. 
Since idols are impotent and God is almighty, it is folly to fear them or their servants. It is worse than folly not to trust in him, not to trust in God. Three times we are told to trust in the Lord. Why? Because three times we're told he is our help and our shield. It's not for nothing that we're told to trust in the Lord and not in idols of our own making. And so I'll ask this morning, are you trusting in the Lord as your help and your shield? We all need a help and a shield. I, think, I don't think anybody here would say differently. We all know that we need help. We all know that we need protection. Are you trusting in the Lord alone as your help and your shield? Or are you leaning on other things? Are you trusting in something besides the Lord to get you through? Second Chronicles 16.9, a very familiar text, says this. It tells us the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Remember, the idols have eyes but can't see. God's eyes are everywhere. God sees. He's looking for those who will trust in him and not the idols to show himself strong on their behalf. We just have to have faith in him and his promise that he will do just that. And not only that, but no less than five times. Three, three times is a lot. Five times is, is, is even more. Five times in verses 12 through 15, we are told of and promised of the blessing of God Upon those who trust in him alone. God is able to bless. God is able to help and to be a shield if we will trust in him. And so we who trust the Lord are blessed in him who is uh, because of that faith in him by his grace. And then what are we to do? Verse 18. Bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore and praise the Lord. Amen. That's, that's why we have plenty of reason to praise God from this time forth and forevermore. Let's, let's pray.